You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That'll be our text for this morning. I called Jim this morning, and he called me, and I couldn't uh, couldn't get to the phones. So I called him back just to see what he was doing. He's getting ready to go to a football game today. San Francisco 49ers versus Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's excited about that. He called me because he, he knew I'd been sick and wanted to make sure everything was all right. But I want to tell the anyone that's here new today, we have a lot of people that's their first time visiting. I am not the normal preacher, so give us one more Sunday, please, okay? Don't judge everything by today. Uh, we're going to be uh, looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I know it's a chapter that a lot of you have, have probably read. It's one of the most well-loved chapters in the Bible. So let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity again to to share your word. Thank you, Lord. This has been a tremendous challenge for me. Uh, this word is a hard one if, if we really apply it. And Lord, that's what I pray. You are the definition of love. You are the giver of love. And when we love, we show God to, to the people that we love. Lord, you've called us to this. Uh, this is a command of scripture. And I pray, Lord, as we go through it, it would be clearly understood that I would be able to stay completely out of the way of what your Holy Spirit has for us today. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be talking about love, in case you haven't guessed that, by the scripture reading or by the prayer, or by the fact that it's 1 Corinthians 13. Probably guess that. Well, let me start by asking you a question. Are you a Christian? See some nods, right? Think about that for a second. Are you a Christian? How do you evaluate that? And a lot of you, I think, I hope, are thinking theologically or thinking biblically, right? You're thinking to yourself, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? I know what it means to be a Christian. Uh, let's see, it, it means that I understand that I'm a sinner, that apart from Christ, I'd be judged, I'd be punished for my sin. I believe that Christ died for my sin, that he's my Savior and Lord. I put my faith completely, totally in him for my salvation. So, yes, I'm a Christian. But think about it for a little bit longer. Am I a Christian? What if I took the A out of it and I said, am I Christian? That changes it a little bit, doesn't it? And you might still say yes, but then you're starting to think, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? How does a Christian act, in other words? If I said it this way, is the person sitting in front of you today, are they a Christian? Well, you might also go to kind of a theological thought of that. Maybe you've heard their testimony, you've heard them share the gospel. But you know you can't directly observe their Christianity, their faith. So you might have said, think about their behavior. Do they demonstrate Christian behavior? Do they act like a Christian? But that begs the question of how does a Christian act? So what defines Christian character? In other words, if I said to you, if you found someone who does blank, you've likely found a Christian. If you have someone who displays the character of blank, you've likely found a Christian. How would you fill in that blank? You might say holiness. You might say hatred of sin, obedience to God. And you'd be right. All those things are true. 
But there's this one character trait that encompasses all of them and is superior in that sense to all of them, and that's love. That's what we're going to look at today. So if I were to define a Christian as one who loves, well, that's maybe a good definition, but it doesn't mean anything unless we understand what love means. We have to understand what love means, and that's what we'll spend some time doing this morning. So 1 Corinthians 13, again, it's probably the most popular chapter in the Bible. You've all read it, I'm sure. Uh, many of you have, had, have heard it preached. I realized as I was beginning this, I've never heard it preached, which I, was kind of astounding to me. You've all heard it at weddings, you know, different places. It's very popular. It's probably on wedding invitations more than any other uh, chapter. But whether you've learned it or not, we all need to be reminded of it. We all need to have this love defined, clarified, magnified. This is the essence of Christian character. Now, when I have an opportunity to preach, very few and far between that that I'm able to do this, I can preach on any passage in the Bible. So I always have to ask myself which one to do. What what do I want to share from? And I chose this because I understand that there's a need for this in our congregation. So don't let it sail over your heads because you've heard 1 Corinthians 13. We read in the scripture reading this morning, just read from 1 John, that God is love. God is love. God invented love. God created love. God is the source of all true love. God is the the empowerment of this love that we'll look at. So God gets to define what love is. And he does that through his word. And we'll see that. So normally now would be a really good time to go through all the history of uh, and background of 1 Corinthians, tell you all about the church at Corinth. Yeah, but I only have about 40 minutes to do a lot of 1 Corinthians 13. Normally also, 1 Corinthians 13 would be, what, the, about less than 500 in a series on 1 Corinthians, something like that, right? I just joked this morning about hoping to get through, he's going to accelerate Romans 9, and he hopes to get through in 10 years. All right, well, 1 Corinthians, when Jim preaches on this, you know we'll be in it for a long time. I, I just don't have time to do all that. So what I'm going to do is just emphasize a couple of things that I think will really help us understand what's going on. I'm getting kind of like a real echo. Are you guys experiencing that? Okay. You guys working on that? Okay. They're working on it. They're just not there yet. Okay. Should I be quieter or louder? No, don't do anything. He says, don't do anything. Okay. We'll shoulder on. Soldier on. So a couple of things that we see. Chapter 11, You can, if you want to turn back there. Chapter 11 is a discussion of their, really their impropriety and fellowship. And won't go through the whole chapter, but it seems that the Corinthians were being prideful even in the practice of communion of all things. Before, their, before they took communion, they would have a love feast. And they turned that love feast into an eating competition. The wealthy people would bring tons of food and they would gorge themselves as gluttons, while the poor among them would bring nothing or, or just have very little to live on. They didn't share. Do you believe that? Out of potluck, they didn't share. I guess it wasn't a potluck because everybody brought their own meal, but... I don't like potluck anyway. I don't, I don't believe in luck, so I don't know why we call it that. Up some of the name, but that's a side note. But can you imagine that? It would be shameful to us, wouldn't it? Right? It was all about them trying to show off by their love feast. Chapter 12 is a rebuke of their abuse of spiritual gifts. There was a really kind of strange, prideful spiritualism in the Corinthian church. They all wanted the gifts that would make them seem somehow more spiritual, more enlightened than the others. They they all wanted to speak in tongues, have the miraculous gift of tongues. 
And some of them wanted to actually speak in languages unknown to men, heavenly dialects, the languages of angels, as we'll see in a minute. So they just have ecstatic tongues talking to show how spiritual they were, how much better they were than the other members of the congregation. They desired the gift of prophecy. Anything that would set them apart as being these hyper-spiritual Corinthian believers. You see the problem? We're going to talk about love. You see the problem. These people had a me-first attitude. This attitude is completely antithetical to Christian character. It's the opposite of Christian love, as we'll see as we go through this. Think about it. I mean, the, the, the way they were abusing tongues, trying to speak in heavenly languages, what good would that possibly do to the people around them? They weren't thinking of the others. Nobody there was an angel. No one could speak those languages. So what possible edification was there in doing that? There wasn't any. So that's the problem. So that's kind of the introduction. That's what Paul is addressing with the Corinthians, is this prideful attitude. What they lacked was a humility towards one another. They lacked a proper esteem of themselves relative to other people. What they lacked was love. And so that's why 1 Corinthians 13, Paul wants to tell them what love is. So we're going to start with the first three verses of chapter 13. And in these, Paul really shatters any notion anybody could have that anything is more important than love. Tongues talking or being, you know, having a, a lot of money to show off at a love feast or any of the other things that they took so much pride in. He's showing them those things are nothing. What really matters is love. That's the only thing that matters. And he's going to show them uh, by way of a few examples. I think there are uh, five different things that he shows them that really are nothing without love. These are things that we might think are something. They certainly thought they were something. But we see that without love, they're nothing. So let's look at that. 1 Corinthians 13, first three verses. It says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love... I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faiths which remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. It's pretty powerful. You probably have a heading in this section of your Bible. It might say the greatest gift or something like love is essential or the necessity of love, the preeminence of love. And these three verses do, in fact, establish that love is essential, it's necessary, it's preeminent over all the other fruits of the Spirit, all of the traits of character, any other activities or ideas. Uh, love is preeminent. We haven't defined love, but what these verses will tell us is that unless we have love, we're nothing. We accomplish nothing. It profits us nothing. It's absolutely vital we have this love. So let's go through this. It's a, the first part says, without love, the miraculous gift of tongues was nothing. It says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, we know what the tongues of men means. We learned about that in Acts 2. This was that miraculous ability to, to speak a language of, a, of the, a known language that you had never learned. So it wasn't an unknown language. It's just one you had never learned. You were never taught. They had the ability to do this. In Acts 2, the, the languages are specifically listed. There was uh, a few of them were Parthians, Medes, Elamites. They listed the languages of the, of the men. They were known languages. So these are the tongues of men. We understand that. This is one of the things that Paul's talking about, the ability to speak in a language he'd never learned. But what are the tongues of angels? Let's spend a few minutes on this. It would naturally flow that if the tongues of men means languages of men, the tongues of angels means languages of angels. So do we think Paul is teaching here that angels have their own unique languages, their own language? Could be. 
doesn't have to be, as we'll see. Uh, is there anywhere in Scripture where it tells us that, lang- that angels have their own languages? Not that I'm aware of. Certainly there's, no, there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that we ought to try to speak the languages of angels. We're not told to communicate with angels. When angels communicate with us, they're perfectly capable of speaking in languages of men. So why do this? When God wanted one of his messengers anywhere in Scripture to speak to men, they do it in the language of men. So let's say angels do have languages. There's definitely no need to speak in the languages of angels in a Corinthian worship service. I guess if you're in an angel worship service, it might make sense to speak in the language of angels, if they have one, but not in a Corinthian worship service. It might have made sense to speak Greek. Right? So that's the idea. Paul's saying, whatever you're doing here, whatever you're trying to do, it's just noise. Right? That's all he's saying. So Paul's point isn't that angels do or don't have their own languages. Whether or not they do, Paul's point is really hyperbole. He's saying, look, if I could speak with all the languages of men, all the languages of men, and all the languages of angels, I could exceed all of you, all the claims that any of you are making to the Corinthian church. But if I don't have love, I'm just making noise. Say, don't put any stock in that gift. If you don't have love, you're just wasting everyone's time. That's what he's saying. It's kind of interesting that where it says, uh, the New American Standard says noisy gong. The King James translates that as uh, sounding brass. And it, it literally is just two words meaning sounding or noisy and brass or bronze or copper. And so it's not clear if that even refers to a musical instrument. We think of it as some sort of brass instrument. But it may be there were, uh, in the amphitheaters of the time, they had uh, bronze urns that would go around the back, and they would use that for acoustics. So when, when there were, whatever was happening up front, the sound would bounce off of those and be better acoustics. And if you hit them, it would make a big clanging sound like a, like a gong. That's why uh, some translations use a gong. Could be a gong. But it's, the point is it's not a pleasant sound. It's not made to make music. It was just made to reflect sound. The, the symbol, we know what a symbol is, right? The big symbol. The Greek word there for the sound that the symbol makes is a lalazan, and it, it meant a war cry, just like a wailing sound. And it kind of, you can imagine. So it's not real intelligent sound, right? It's not full of content. It's just a scream or a shout. So you see what Paul's saying. You're just clanging and wailing. You're not making any sense. There's no edification to it, no content. As if we imagine, if we took the three and four-year-olds and we had them come up and play the instruments, I, that'd be cute. I wouldn't mind doing that because it'd be cute. But there wouldn't be a lot of content in that, would there? It really wouldn't be leading worship. There's no content in it. Or like whoever has to sit in front of me when we sing, you know, that whatever they're experiencing, that's the same idea. There's really nothing edifying there, right? Okay, you get the idea. I I do try to have some melody, whatever. It just doesn't come out. So that's the point. The exercise of tongues here that they were doing was just noise. It had no content, no purpose. So that's the first example he gives us. Without love, speaking in tongues is nothing. Look at the second one, verse 2. It says, if I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have love, I'm nothing. There's a couple things there. Look at the first one. The gift of prophecy, to know all mysteries and all knowledge. Without love, it's nothing. 
So imagine you knew all the mysteries of science. You knew everything about the natural world, natural universe. You had all your theological points down. You knew all the mysteries of God. You knew everything there was to know. That's pretty cool, huh? And that's what the Corinthians wanted to come off as knowing all this stuff, right? Paul tells them, if you don't have love, that's nothing. Knowing all that stuff is just nothing. That seems pretty clear, but think about that for a second. You know, here at Kootenai Community Church, we're committed to doctrine. We're not ashamed to say that. We're very strongly committed to doctrine. You know that if you've gone here for more than five minutes. I had a pastor a long time ago when I was uh, in another church, when I was in Seattle uh, years ago, and I still remember this message. He started off by saying, what's more important, doctrine or love? What's more important, doctrine or love? Eh? That's a good one. Think about that. What's more important, doctrine or love? What's the right answer? Well, doctrine's important. We're, doctrine's important. But the most important doctrine is love. Right? There's no disagreement between love and doctrine. Love is a doctrine. I'm teaching you doctrine today. Paul was teaching the Corinthians doctrine. That doctrine was love. Love is the most important doctrine. When we say God is love, that's profound theology. You start thinking through that. What sums up the commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said. That sums up the commandments. So if love sums up theology, it sums up the law, it's an important doctrine. There's no disagreement between love and doctrine. Right. Let me say this. If you're not loving in the way that we're going to understand agape Christian love here, if you're not loving in that way, you do not understand the first thing about doctrine. Right. Your head may be filled with stuff, but you don't understand any of it if you're not loving. Right. It's also true that if you don't understand doctrine, you will never display the kind of biblical love that 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about. They go together. There's no disagreement there. I hope that makes sense. So one thing I don't like about preaching versus teaching is you can't know what people are thinking. You don't get any questions. I can look, but that's all I get is the face. I don't. I can't know what's going on there. Well, what about the other part of verse uh, verse two? It says, "If I have all faith, to, to, so as to remove mountains, but to not have love, I'm nothing." I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. Uh, this is a faith, this is faith is an absolute belief in the promises of God. This believes unshakably that God will do what he said he will do. But Paul says without love, it's nothing. Uh, I think the easiest way to understand this is to think of Jonah. Remember the whole story of Jonah? Did Jonah have great faith? Did he believe that God would 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 come to the Ninevites, that they would repent and they'd turn to God to be forgiven? You bet he did, right? That's why he got in a boat and went the other way. See, if he thought, look, if I preach the word, God's probably not going to accomplish it anyway, I might as well go. Right? He didn't want the Ninevites to repent, so that's why he didn't go. He had tremendous faith, Jonah did. But he didn't have love. And so when we think of the story of Jonah, how do we think of Jonah? What do we think of Jonah? 
Do we think of him as the same way we think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, the great prophets of the Old Testament? The weeping prophet? No. Jonah was used of God in spite of his lack of love, and God could do that, we know that. But in the story of Jonah, Jonah is nothing. Jonah's really nothing in that story. It doesn't come off as positive in that story. The gift of faith is a tremendous gift. This, I'm not talking about saving faith. I'm talking about this, this gift of faith that Jesus talked about, the faith, the ability to move mountains and say to this mountain, go jump into the sea. Remember that? Paul uses the exact same sort of metaphor. This is a, a special gift that some people have. That they, they have a greater certainty about all of God's promises than, than other people. It's a great gift. If it's directed right, if it's directed with love towards God, love towards our families, love towards our church, can accomplish tremendous things. We see that. But without love, it's absolutely nothing. It's misdirected. Look at the next one. This one was the most puzzling to me. Verse 3. It says, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. The first part of that. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, I didn't make that sound. I'm not capable of it. That was too pure a tone to ever come out of me. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, I want you to understand exactly what this is talking about, the type of giving that it's talking about. It's referring to actually doling out your possessions to the poor. Uh, like it, The same word is used when Jesus broke the bread and handed it out. That's the idea. Or like if you have a little a little kid and you, you, you pull a little piece and give it to him. You know what I mean? Like that, you're doling it out. That's the idea. It's an active giving. It's not just writing one check. He's talking about actively giving everything to the poor, thinking about how I'm going to do it, and actually from my hand to theirs. That's tremendous. Tremendous act of charity. But without love, it's nothing. That's that's the message. I'm going to come back to that one after we've defined love so you can see how that would work. How is it that you could do a sacrifice like that, so great, and do it without love? So let's look at the the next one, the last one. It says, without love, uh, even martyrdom is worthless. Look at that. It says, if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Uh, That's the New American Standard. NIV says, if I surrender my body to the flames. New King James says, though I give my body to be burned. It would seem there's something about fire in this verse, right? Something about burning. If you have an NIV, some of you do, there's going to be a text note, and it says, some early manuscripts say, body that I may boast. So then it would be, if I surrender my body that I may boast, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Uh, Without going into too much detail, it's really not clear whether it's talking about actually giving your body up to be burned, or just giving your body up in in terms of sacrificing for that. They're still working on the sound, in case you haven't figured that out yet. We getting any closer? All right. So I don't know if it's talking about burning or not, but the point of it is that no personal sacrifice, whether it's the kind of things that Paul went through, the beatings and deprivations that he went through, or actually being burned, uh, they don't matter without love. It, it seems that the, you know, we think about Christians being burned. Well, that didn't really happen until about 10 years after this was written. Now, Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He could have been looking forward to that and thinking about those those people that would suffer that way. Or he could have just been 
kind of imagining what would be the worst possible thing that you could go through for the, for the sake of Christ? Or actually, for not for the sake of Christ here. What's the worst thing you could go through? And that may have been what he's talking about. Or it could just be, hey, giving up your body in such a way like Paul did with stonings and beatings and, and all of those things. I don't know. But the point is that no personal sacrifice, even to the point of death, is worth anything in the absence of love. Right? Now, you put the verses together. It actually says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith is to remove mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So, so far to this point, really what we're seeing and what we're trying to establish is the preeminence of love, how important love is. Nothing else matters. Nothing else we can do matters. All right? We have to have love. It's absolutely essential. Well, that's really good to know. Now, what is this love you're talking about? We have to now define that. So we're going to do that. Uh, the dictionary won't help you at all. If you look up love in the dictionary, it's absolutely worthless. It, it, uh, it really reflects our cultural notions of what love is. It's about affection and feeling and romance. and It has nothing to do with agape Christian love. Nothing at all. So let's figure out exactly what it does mean. And this chapter gives us a definition by telling us what love does, what it doesn't, tells us what, what love is and what it isn't. So we'll go through those. There's actually, you're wondering right now, how is he going to do all of this in the next, hopefully, not that long? <laughs> That's what you're thinking. Isn't that what you're thinking? That's what Thomas is thinking. I can see it in your eyes. There are 15 perfections of love listed here, 15 facets of love listed. I'm not going to try to do 15. I'm going to try to do seven. And the reason I'm going to try to do seven is the seventh one is kind of a summation and a definition. So of necessity, I have to go fairly quickly. Now, one of the nice things about doing this with 1 Corinthians 13, you know, some scriptures, when you teach those, you have to do a little digging and, and bring the gems up. The gems are just laying here. They just have to be cleaned up a little bit for you to see and make sure you understand there's nothing lost in translation. All right, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the first uh, seven of these in detail. So start with verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Patience and kindness go together generally. Quite often in Scripture, you think of them as mercy and grace. Patience is a, a passive side of the coin. Kindness is an active side. I'll show you what all these mean. Uh, patience means long-suffering, sometimes translated that way. It's exactly what it means to suffer long, to endure for a long time. It means to put up with stuff, to put up with slights and indignities. Right, the offenses that other people throw your way without retaliation. Even when the means to retaliation is available to you and you might feel justified in retaliating, you don't. It means to not do anything in that case. Right, that's what kindness means. It's uh, turning the other cheek. It's like a strong man turning the other cheek to a, a weaker man. Means to retaliate are at hand, but you choose not to do so. Perfect example of this is God himself. Right, think about it. He has endured offense from his puny creation for thousands of years. And yet, every day, he doesn't, he doesn't retaliate. He doesn't do what would be so simple for him with a thought. Start over. He doesn't do that. Right? That's kindness, patience. We see it in Christ. What, when Christ was on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Wow, that's patience. That's perfect kindness. It's not retaliating. The means were certainly at hand for Christ to retaliate. And he would have been justified in that. 
The suffering he took was completely unjustified, but he took it. And why did he take it? Because he loves us. He did it for love. Demonstrated love through patience. It, patience is passive. It, it's calling us to do nothing at a time when we want to do something. It's passive. It's unnatural. In fact, in Greek culture, being patient was wrong. If you did that, you were weak, you were immoral, really, in, in Greek culture, if you were patient. Your worth was measured by how quickly, forcefully, and effectively you could retaliate against somebody. I'm going to stand up for my rights. You don't mess with me. See, that's in our culture too, isn't it? And they can seep into our Christian culture if we're not careful. We don't stand up for our rights. Sort of the essence of being Christian, essence of Christian love. The active side of the coin is kindness, or you can think of it as grace. Love is patient and love is kind. Patience is a passive side again. Kindness, it's, that's not repaying evil for evil. Being kind is actually doing that which benefits someone who's offended you. Right? Uh, Jesus taught us about that. Luke chapter 6, I'll just uh, read you. This is Luke chapter 6, 27 through 30. He said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. So turning the other cheek, that's patience. Giving your shirt is kindness, the active side. Do good to those who hate you. Doing good is being kind. Here's a perfect example of kindness. Again, it's God himself. Think about this. What do you have that you haven't been given? If you understand anything, nothing, right? I don't have anything that I haven't been given. You say, well, I earned this and I earned that. Hey, without life, without a body, without a brain, without the things that God has given you, you are nothing. You don't even exist. We have nothing that hasn't been given to us. And not just us, not just, not just Christians. It's not just true of Christians, it's true of everybody. Okay? People who hate the light, people who hate God, who shake their fist at God, or at least deny the source of everything they've been given, yet he still pours out what we call common grace. You've heard that term, common grace. Common grace, we we mean that as common to all. Everybody gets it. Everybody gets this grace from God. It's life, it's eyesight, it's ability to hear, music, sunshine, family, uh, Thanksgiving dinner coming up, right? All those things we call common grace. It doesn't mean they're common in the sense of not being very valuable. It's common to everybody. You start to think about all the blessings that God pours out on all of us, even those who don't love God, don't serve God. That is kindness. That is doing good to those who hate him. That's what he does. He does it all the time. Perfect example. So how do we demonstrate the genuineness of our faith again? Through love. How do we show love? By displaying patience and kindness. If you thought patience was hard and not retaliating, think about kindness. If somebody's done something wrong to me. They really did something wrong to me. They shouldn't have done it. I'm supposed to do good to them. I'm supposed to benefit them. Unnatural. These things are only given to us spiritually. These are completely unnatural. You can't do these in the flesh. You cannot love like this in the flesh. This is spiritually given, spiritually enabled. Look at the next one. It says, love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Uh, NIV has, love does not envy. 
Right? Uh, so it's either jealous, love is not jealous, or love does not envy. Those, those English words have a little bit of a different meaning, so I want to clear that up. Some jealousy in Scripture is good. Okay? And it's, it's all the same word. It's, it's, our, it's the root for our word zeal, when we use the word zeal. And it really just means to have a strong desire. It could be positive or negative. Depends on the object of the desire, the motivation of the desire. In context here, it's clearly negative. Jealousy or envy, however it's translated, is clearly negative. It seems to refer to having a strong desire for me, strong desire for my well-being, as opposed to someone else's. That's what it's talking about. Love doesn't envy like that. When you're loving, you genuinely find pleasure when someone else benefits, when someone else achieves, when someone else gets something, gains. You genuinely find pleasure in that because you humble yourself. You value them as highly as yourself. You want them to have good. Right? That's what love does. There's lots of examples in Scripture. You could start from the beginning in Scripture and look for examples of sin that's motivated by this envy or jealousy. You won't get very far. The fall, uh, the, Satan's rebellion, motivated by jealousy, envy of God. The fall. What did Eve say? I might know, I might be like God in knowing good and evil. Jealousy, it's envy. Cain and Abel, right? All these motivated by, by jealousy, envy. So I want to emphasize one that's, that's, a, that's an example of love that doesn't envy. It's a really beautiful example. Jonathan's love for David. You know the whole story about Saul's son Jonathan and his love for David. Jonathan had as much to lose as Saul did by David's ascension, didn't he? Jonathan was in line for the throne. But instead, he willingly gives up the throne to a better man, David. He willingly does that. He esteemed David more highly than himself. Oh, that's easy. That's a, you know that's an Old Testament Jonathan and David. That's easy. But what about you? Look, what if you were you're on the job? You've been eyeing some promotion, some new position for a long time. You've been working for it, and somebody else gets it. You have to admit to yourself that they're better than you. Can you rejoice in that? That's love. That's a love that doesn't envy. That's a love that's not jealous. So you want to say this is a hard word. You read this and it all sounds nice and oh, love is it. And when you really start understanding it and applying it, it's a hard word. It's really hard to apply this kind of love. It works something like this. This is what I think is a good example because I had to deal with myself on this one. Somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Thomas, I just got a new car. What's your first reaction to that? Be honest with yourself. What do you think in your head? You won't necessarily say it. What do you think in your head? You bought a new car? You can't afford a new car. What kind of car did you get? That's not practical. Those are too expensive. They don't get good enough gas mileage. You should have got the car I got because I'm brilliant and I got the right car that everybody should have. Do you, do you, nobody else thinks that except me? Okay, good. That's good. You're all, that's good. You're more loving than I am. Genuine Christian love wants another person to have things. They want them to gain. They want them to, even if it's at my expense, I want you to have things and I want you to gain. It's a tough one, isn't it? Love would say, you got a new car? That's great. I'm so glad you have a new car. I'm genuinely glad that you have this car. You're going to get a lot of fun and a lot of uh, usefulness out of it. It's great. That's what genuine Christian love would do. Now, if it's not your first reaction, I would encourage you not to react. 
until it can be your reaction. Right? Okay. So love is patient. It's kind. It's not jealous. Look at the next one. It's kind of fun. Next couple ones are kind of fun. Love does not brag. Love doesn't brag. King James says, love does not vaunteth itself. It's really kind of a cool word. It's only used uh, in in this book. There's a lot of words that are only used in 1 Corinthians. It tells me that the Corinthians were so out there that Paul had to make up like new words that he didn't use anywhere else just to get to these guys. I'm told it literally means windbag, like being a windbag. We had a great example of that, and it may happen again here shortly. But during Sunday school, see this big green bag up here? There's a big green bag over all you guys. That's what the heat comes out of. You see how it's kind of sucked in right now because the heat went off? When the heat goes back on, that thing's going to come back on. It goes like thunder. Uh, Jess actually kind of leapt. He leapt a little bit. <laughs> I, haven't seen, I haven't seen you leap for, for a while. It was kind of, kind of cool. But it's, it's like really loud. And so I thought, oh, that's a really good example. It's a bag of wind. That's what its purpose is. So if it goes off now, you'll remember that. Because I'll jump too, and it'll be embarrassing. It, it really means to show off by speaking, by talking, by, by using, you know, using your words to, to build yourself up, to brag. I want to be careful about this. I love to hear, and if I love you, I should love to hear about your accomplishments. I, I do. I work with teens and kids a lot. So I hear a lot about how their sports team did. And how many points they scored, stuff like that. And I hear about, you know, the ribbons they won and how they're doing in their TNT book. The kid this morning did a whole bunch of sections. You ought to be, you know, you ought to be able to say, to tell me, a kid ought to be able to come up to me and tell me, hey, I did five sections in my book and I'm happy with, about that and I'm pleased with that. He's not bragging. Right? We're just sharing in his accomplishment. That, that's fine. Bragging comes in when I'm trying to build myself up and I'm trying to build my status. And men do this, I think, more than women. I don't know that because not being a woman. Really not being a woman. Uh, when men get together, we use language for status. If we're not careful, we really do that. Where we're, you know, oh, it seems like I'm getting pushed down a little bit, so I have to build myself up a little more. That's what's talking about. Love doesn't brag. I have a great example of, of not bragging. When I say this, I better be careful how I say this, because I, I wrote, I have a friend who's a tremendous example of this. You're thinking of bragging. But no, he's a tremendous example of not bragging. I won't name any names, but I get together with this person every week, and it's a joy, it's a tremendous joy. He never brags. He never tells me about all the great things he does, even though I know these things, right? He doesn't tell me. Instead, he always wants to tell me how great Mel is. He wants to tell me how talented Mel Jensen is. Like, I know how talented Mel Jensen is. I don't need to hear it every week. Okay? Sorry, Mel. <laughs> Just kidding. He, he likes to tell me about Tim, Slippy, and how, how good a worker Tim is, and how respectful he is, which I also know. Right? He likes to tell me how talented this person is, and how faithful that person is, and how great this kid is doing. And you know what? It's a tremendous joy. I so look forward to that because I know it's going to be uplifting and edifying to me. I look forward to that time every week for that reason. What a joy that is. To have somebody that just, all they want to do is, is talk up other people. Great example of love. Especially this guy, he, the, the person he loves to talk up the most is his wife, which is tremendous. He always wants to tell me how grateful he is to the Lord that his wife married him, and how amazed he is that, to this day that that happened. Okay. 
That's love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. It's another interesting word. It needs to be inflated like a tire, kind of a lot like the other. Uh, full of yourself, puffed up, we use those words. It's used repeatedly in 1 Corinthians and nowhere else in Scripture. Uh, it was the, the essential issue with the Corinthians, right? They were completely puffed up. They were making something out of nothing. They had nothing. They were full of nothing. And they made something out of it. Wow, I can speak in the tongues of angels, I think. I just keep saying Alabama over and over again. And I'm saying that's the tongues of angels. And so I'm something. I'm highly spiritual in that sense. Paul's saying, no. You don't understand the use of the gift of tongues at all. You're just arrogant in it. You're not using it properly. Pretty clear, pretty obvious. And say, let's esteem ourselves honestly. Nobody here is any better than anybody else. We should know that in Christ. So can we not waste any more time trying to convince ourselves that we're better than somebody else? We waste a lot of time doing that. You don't have to be better. Look, I'm up here preaching this morning. I'm not a great preacher. This is not Charles Spurgeon up here. I get that. So what? It doesn't matter. I don't, you don't have to puff yourself up. It just doesn't matter. Nobody's listening to that anyway. Right? We know you. Look at the next one. Uh, it says, love does not act unbecomingly. You may have love is not rude. King James has, love does not behave itself unseemly. Which is kind of cool. The idea here is that love acts appropriately to the situation. Love is not rude. It's not inappropriate. It's not... It's not crude, disgraceful. Uh, it's none of those things. It, it, it doesn't promote anything that's shameful or shocking or indecent. The Corinthians were, we might call them shameless or shameful, both apply. The way that they were at their love feast, uh, the, the way that they tried to puff themselves up in pride, it was shameful. They, they did things that were just, shouldn't be done, just shocking. Can you imagine a love feast like that? Like if we got together and somebody, let's use, somebody's got a lot of money, uh, Lanny, let's use him for example. And he, <laughs> he brought in the, the lobster and the steak and the caviar and the fine china and he had servants with little thingies on them. What are those things? Napkins, I guess? I don't know. Towels? It was clear in my mind, but it, it, I, now I have no idea what they're called. But can you imagine that? And then somebody else comes along who's really poor, let's use Dale, as an example, Dale has nothing. He's got like a hot dog bun and some butter, you know. And they don't share? That's shocking. It's indecent. can't happen, right? It's wrong. And I didn't get into some of the grosser things, some of the grosser sins that went on in Corinth. They're engaged in sexual sin that was just off the charts, the worst things you could think of. Shocking, shameful. It's not loving at all. That's the point. Our behavior should indicate a reasonable amount of discretion towards one another. Thinking about what we're doing and saying and trying not to offend one another. It applies to the practice of Christian liberties. Uh, as a, Think about this. Christian liberties. You know, there are things that I think a Christian can participate in that you think is not appropriate, probably. So how do I deal with something like that? If I'm, if I'm talking to you and I said, oh yeah, I did this, and you go, oh, you shouldn't do that. That's not Christian. Well, should I stand up for myself, assert my rights as a Christian, my liberties, and say, no, it's fine to do that? And there may be a teaching moment, depending on the role of the person you're talking with, whatever. 
But you cannot assert your rights as a Christian. That's an oxymoron. If you are asserting your rights, you are not acting as a Christian in that moment. Christians do not assert their rights over one another like that. I'm not going to stand up for my rights if it offends one of you. I'm not going to do that. If I'm engaged in something you don't approve of, I'm not going to glory in that thing in your presence. I'm not going to talk about it in your presence. If it bothers you to a tremendous degree, I won't do it. That's love, right? That's what we have to do. See, this is getting harder and harder, isn't it? Anyway, well, why would I stop doing that? I know some people don't like it, but I really do like it. I don't see anything wrong with it. Well, you stop doing it because you're offending your brother. That's it. That's the only reason, and that's plenty of reasons. There are things that we don't do here as a church that I think would be fine to do. We don't do them because it would be offensive to some of you. So we won't do them. As elders, we, we won't do those things. I won't go into specifics because that would offend some of you. <laughs> okay, so I told you I was going to do seven. In case you're uh, counting, that was number six. Here's number seven. Love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own, or love is not self-seeking. It's two Greek words meaning seek self. Very simple. Love doesn't seek itself. That's what it's saying. Love doesn't seek after its own. It means it doesn't. a person who's loving, a Christian who's loving, doesn't first seek their own well-being. They first seek the well-being of others. That's the essence of love. That's why I feel like I can kind of stop here. Because this defines love. We built up almost a definition of love by looking at the other elements. But this one really sums it up for me. Love does not seek its own. Paul tells the Corinthians in uh, 10, 1 Corinthians 10.24, very clearly, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. See, the Corinthians displayed exactly the opposite of love. They sought their own. They wanted to be first in the congregation. They want to be first in the love feast. They want to have the most food. They want to be the most highly thought of. It's the opposite of love. Love is a sincere... This is the first like, definition here. And I don't, I'll don't. i probably give you five of them. They don't mean the same thing. Love is a sincere, genuine, strong desire to promote the well-being of another person at my immediate expense. It's putting someone else above myself. It's humble. So this is, to me, that's the peak of the chapter, because now we, we kind of understand the motivation behind sacrifice. Go back a little bit. Remember, Paul said, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And that seems curious. How could that not be a loving thing? How is it possible to give all my possessions and not be loving in that? Well, if love seeks its own, then giving my possessions without love must mean that I am somehow seeking my own in that. And there's lots of ways for that to be true. I might be giving all of my stuff because I want people to think I gave away all my stuff. And I'm great for that. It's a good reason to do it. But it's not loving. right? If I'm an unbeliever, you'll see this. If I'm an unbeliever, I may want to give away stuff. I even want to give to churches and sort of religious uh, causes because I'm trying to convince myself that the guilt that I feel is undeserved. That I'm really, I really am a good person. See, I gave away all my stuff. Okay. Unloving. Loving giving is giving because you want someone to benefit, even if it does cost you something. Okay. So that's how it can be. You see, it's the motivation. 
It's the attitude, not just the action. Some have said that love is sacrifice. I've said that. I've said that. You've heard me say that. Love is sacrifice. And I believe that as long as we understand the motivation for the sacrifice. It's not really just the sacrifice. It's the willingness. It's the desire that's underneath the sacrifice, which is humility, which is thinking that you're worthy of that sacrifice. You should have something more than I should have something. That's love. If you still don't get it, um, let's just read through the rest of them real quick. I'm just going to read them. Start with verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own. It is not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Beautiful definition of love. Love never fails. If love is the essential descriptive term for the Christian, as love defines the Christian, we have to show love. I'm going to say this very carefully um, because I know a lot of you. I know a lot of you very well. And so it's, you know, this is one of the things you be very careful to say. First John 3.14 that, that Jess read this morning says, We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Right? We know we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. If you're not characterized by love, urge you to examine whether you're in the faith. This is the essential definition of what it means to be a Christian in terms of behavior and thought, is love. If you don't display that, and if you know that you don't display that, Please examine to see whether you're in the faith. Right? Let's think about love in specifics. If we love God, we say we love God, right? We love God. Well, now we understand what love is. It's a willing willingness to sacrifice for its object. So we're willing to sacrifice for God. When we say we love God, that's what that means. It doesn't mean I have good feelings about God. I think highly of God. I esteem God. So I hope all these things are true. But that's when you say I love God, what you mean is you're willing to sacrifice for God. So before you say that again, are you willing to sacrifice for God? What does it mean to sacrifice for God? Primarily, it means obedience. I'm not going to do stuff that I want to do because God says not to do it. That's a sacrifice that I make for God. If you love God, you have to love His children. There's lots of books going on around that I love Jesus, but I don't love the church and all that kind of stuff. That's nonsense. You can't love God if you don't love His people. So, how do you love his people? How do you love God? You show that by loving his people. How do you do that? By making sacrifices for them. So, what what are those sacrifices? There's a lot of football going on right now, and instead you're sitting right here. That's a sacrifice. Maybe you prepare a Sunday school lesson faithfully every Sunday. Then that means your Saturday is partially used up in preparing for Sunday school. That's a sacrifice for the Lord. That's demonstrated love. That's love. How about this? Do you love the lost? Love means sacrificing to meet their need, right? To, to benefit them. What the lost need is the gospel. That's what the lost need. Far more than anything else, that's what the lost need. Do you share the gospel with the lost, with lost people? If you don't, don't say that you love them. I don't care what else you do for them. These work days, the churches have work days and they go out and they clean the homes of lost people and they, you know, whatever they do for them. 
and they, but they, in the letter that they send out, they say, make sure you don't share the gospel. Uh, we're not, don't, we're not being religious here. We're just helping them out. That is unloving towards the lot. You're making their house a little cleaner place to go to hell from is not a loving activity. Okay? Loving the lost implies sharing the gospel with them. So don't say you love them if you don't share the gospel with them. Now I'm going to meddle just a little bit and then don't worry, we're close to done. So just throw that out there and then, then I'll get away. So you won't hurt me. Men, do you love your wives? Oh, yeah, of course I love my wife, right? Do you sacrifice for her? Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, do you live those chapters? Do you work hard to understand your wife and to meet her needs? Provide for her? You have to provide for her financially, emotionally, socially. Do you listen to her? Women like to talk more than men do, generally speaking. Right? So men have to learn to be good listeners if they're going to be husbands. That's loving your wife is listening to her. Right? And wives are looking at their husbands going, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. And men, I know it's painful sometimes, you know? You, 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 you work hard, you come home, you really don't want to hear every detail, but sometimes you have to. That's love, that's the sacrifice. It's a real sacrifice sometimes, I know it is. Please don't say you love your wife and you can't express it. Now you understand what love is, that's a lie. Love unexpressed isn't love. It's just some weird romantic feeling. Okay? I shouldn't say that that's a bad thing. It's not, but it pales in comparison to Christian love. You love your wife. You sacrifice for her. You demonstrate it. There's, if you love your wife, she knows that you love her. Okay? And she can point to specific things that you've done that would indicate love for her. Okay, wives, do you love your husbands? You know you have to love your husbands? What? (laughs) Loving your husband means being respectful towards him, being submissive towards him. It means doing those things that bring him pleasure and joy. Uh, Men are really simple in in the things that they desire. Meet those. Provide for him. Even if it's a sacrifice. Even if he's unloving, right? Comes home, all he seems to want to do is watch football. He doesn't want to talk, he doesn't want to listen. So I'm just going to... That's not loving. No matter, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't say that you only have to love your wife, your husband if he's loving, or, you, or husbands, you only have to love your wife if they're loving. You have to love them anyway. You have to sacrifice, make those sacrifices. How about kids? Kids, you love your parents? Shane? You should really nod. She's sitting right next to you. <laughs> oh, yes, she said. What is loving your parents? How do you, remember, love is willing sacrifice, humble, willing sacrifice. How do you do that? For, Kids, loving your parents primarily means obeying them. It means listening to them. It means obeying them, even when what they say makes no sense at all. Right? And I know sometimes when I, I hear something I say to my kids, and I'm like, where did that, what am I, an idiot? You know, but loving me means they obey it. They do it anyway. That's what love is. Right? Even when it doesn't make sense. See, love is found in sacrifice, and it's not found in anywhere else. You want to understand what love is, and this is a great chapter for it. But the best way to understand what love is is to look to our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about what he did for us. Uh, just read this too this morning. 1 John 3.16 We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's our example. Right, let's pray together.
Father, I'm so grateful for your word. It is uh, amazingly, exceedingly beautiful. And I'm, I'm even afraid, I was afraid to approach this word. It's already so perfect. And I was uh, afraid to, to break it up and like take it apart. And I pray, Lord, that that didn't happen. That there's just enough clarity there to make this idea of love crystal clear to all of us. Lord, may we serve you by loving by loving you and loving others, that others may see what love really is all about, what Christian love is. That you might be glorified in all of it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.